Hey folks, this is Alex Ricci, uh, your tech for Green Majority. I just wanted to remind everyone, if you can and are able, uh, head over to patreon.com slash greenmajority. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash greenmajority and support us any way you can. We really appreciate uh, your ongoing support and uh, whatever you can spare, we uh, will put to good use. Thanks. Stefan Hostetter and I'm here in studio with a whole a full studio today. It's such a such a such a pleasure when I get to do this. Um, no empty chairs, Stefan. Exactly. Uh, normally we just keep an empty chair to the side just in case, but th- today we d- we had to even use that one in case Trump shows up. Exactly. Uh, of course, this is Darren Kaster, uh, and also please, Trump, if you hear this, come to our show. That would would really help with our ratings. I don't, <laughs> the radio doesn't actually have ratings, but still, it would really help with our ratings. Uh, this is the Green Majority, of course, on CUT eighty nine point five. Uh, Things or on any of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country and a couple in the United States. So Trump might be hearing this because Trump is the kind of guy who listens to community radio uh, and uh, or on Rabble.ca because, again, Trump's favorite news station is Rabble.ca. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, this is obviously a little a little more. I have a little pep in my step today, uh, in part because on the way here, uh, I was biking up from uh, from where I work and. There's, there was this woman just sort of crouched down uh, near the side of the road, and I was wondering what she was doing. So I looked over, and she was just writing Have a Wonderful Day in chalk, in chalk beside the road. And I was like, that is the nicest thing. You know, that's just a, that's just a, just a nice thing to do. There's no other reason to do it just to, like, wish ever the world randomly a wonderful day. So have a wonderful day, everyone, from the wonderful woman on Beverly Street uh, who wrote it in chalk. Uh, also in the studio with me uh, is uh, Sabina and Deirdre. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and we're going to start the show with a with our so our top story which I don't I don't say enough but I like saying our top story today uh is is going to be really about uh old conservatism versus new and I think I, the whole show might have a theme of sort of old ideas versus new. So we'll start with this one. Uh, and Sabina, you've looked into sort of Brad Wall got some heat uh, and then Donald Trump made a speech. Uh so we'll tell us more about that. Of course. So in this week's news, a group of environmental activists are calling out Premier Brad Wall to clarify his stance on climate change. And this is due to the fact that he referred to climate change as, quote unquote, a misguided dogma, which has also urged more than 1000 people to sign an online petition criticizing him for his comments. Environmental activist Mark Biglin Pritchard has commented, saying that he is out of touch with reality, to be quite honest. Moving forward, last week, Wall um, also criticized the new Democrat MLA, Kathy Spruill, for supporting the LEAP Manifesto, which is a policy calling for Canada to move away from fossil fuels. As always, it comes back to the economic gains for a lot of Republicans or conservatives, where Wall states that over 3,000 Saskatchewan families have lost their jobs in the resource sector, which is why he wants to bring it back or wants to deny climate change. And uh, however, this does not take into account for all the clean energy jobs that can come in the future in, Sask- in Saskatchewan if the pr- premier decides to move towards a cleaner energy future. So 
Moving forward to another climate denier in this week's news, uh, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump, I can't believe I'm saying that, (laughs) (laughs) um, unveiled an America first energy plan. He said he would unleash unfettered production of oil, coal, natural gas and other energy resources to push the United States forward to energy independence. I don't even know what that means. His speech <laughs> went beyond energy and targeted, of course, opponent Hillary Clinton saying that she's declaring war on the American worker. First of all, I don't know when Trump has ever been defined as an American worker and he suddenly <laughs> can like start to identify with them. I don't know. And he said one of a great, some great quotes and then Stefan is going to say some other quotes. He stated, free up the coal and bring back thousands of coal jobs. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so this, so this is a, so I want to do that, that sort of dot by part, two part news story. I sort of, uh, talk about that and I'll talk about new conservative leader in Ontario, Patrick Brown. Uh, but first, just because I love all of three of these quotes, uh, from executive director, uh, of the Sierra club, uh, about Trump's speech, uh, all are great. Um, the first is, I, I, this is speech to speech yesterday. And then just thinking about Trump, I was sort of following it live stream and reading the Twitter reaction to Trump's uh, speech yesterday was hilarious. Uh, one person basically just thought he was reading the speech for the first time and then live reacting to it <laughs> as if they just given it to him and he was like reading it. And it was like, Oh, this is what's happening. Okay. Um, uh, and, and because because what's interesting about this is while uh, while of course it's been Trumpified to some extent, it's nothing different from what you've seen for the last twenty thirty years of Republican thinking. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's this idea of it, and what's amazing about this is that while the idea of energy independence is something that the that the Republicans have trumpeted for so long, they completely ignore the fact that. The Obama administration, because of, you know, which is a, the Obama administration actually has done and may, has actually seen a massive increase in production, energy production within the United States. Uh, of course, they won't give them that. And of course, the way they're doing that is quite controversial with, with lefties. Uh, but it's, it's a fascinating thing that, 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 that they're sort of ignoring this piece. Um, but the three, three, my three favorite quotes from Executive Director of Sierra Club on on the on Trump's uh, speech was one, uh, I have never heard more contradiction in one hour than I heard in this speech. Uh, true, there are pools of oil industry wastewater that are deeper than Trump's grasp of energy. So a good solid one. Uh, and three, a jumbled collection, he called the speech, a jumbled collection of oil industry talking points that are devoid from reality and the marketplace. Uh, and that's the part what I want really, really to jump in on. Because this idea that the Republicans and, and conservatives in general sort of put themselves forward as like, we're business people who understand business and government should be run in this sort of way. Uh, and then to, to have them sort of come with this plan, which, which, which is then so obviously like do I, the idea that you can bring coal back in the United States isn't – coal didn't die really because of climate regulations. The states does not have very strong climate regulations now. Sure, there are a couple things come through EPA, but even those haven't really come into effect. Coal is dying because natural gas is a cheaper, more efficient energy, uh, and, and it's, it's being wiped out for that manner. So the idea you can bring coal back in, a, in, in the United States isn't even – it's just not a it's, – it's not a business. No one's starting a business to do this. Yes, there. It, it almost sounds like you're implying he doesn't know what he's doing, Stephen. <laughs> it is almost like I'm impl- implying that, isn't it? And speaking of people who do know what they're doing uh, and who might have thoughts on this, mat- this matter as well, a really interesting article came uh, was out on the Guardian, uh, which which was the, I, I kind of like the actual headline. I sort of I paraphrased it in my notes, but I want to say the actual headline as well uh, because it it references philosophy, uh, which is that oil firms have ten years to change their strategy or face or, or to face a short brutish end. 
um, which is uh, and it, it's from it's an article from by Terry McAllister's Jader for the Guardian, and he's just referencing actually Paul Stevens, who's uh, who's a Catholic House think tank fellow, uh, who who's, who's arguing that basically major oil companies have ten years to diversify or die. Uh, and what's interesting about here is, is like here's someone who's spending his time researching energy uh, and is looking at sort of the at, – the, at, the, at what we're seeing with the drop in oil prices and stuff like that and sort of coming to this conclusion uh, that these – the prognosis, his quote is, – is that quote is that the prognosis for IOCs, which stands for International Oil Companies, uh, was already grim before governments became serious about climate change and the oil, and the oil price collapsed. Their old business model is dying. Uh, and I think it's, it's, this, this is sort of echoing a bunch of other things you're hearing and it's echoing what you sort of see, saw about 10 years ago with the coal industry. Uh, and of course, everyone will be like, well, what about electric car, like cars? Everyone needs oil for all these sort of things, which is the classic talking point here. Uh, but I think the fact that we're like even ignoring the, the climate regulations, which, which, you know, barring a Trump presidency, barring a Trump presidency, <laughs> uh, that we'll, we'll, we'll see a consistent move towards that sort of reduction. Um, it's this, it, we're still not seeing this, this move towards that. Um, but what's interesting is there is, that does exist in some pockets of conservatism. And Patrick Brown, uh, the Ontario new PC leader, uh, is, I think, really trying to rebrand the PCs as someone you might be able to trust with the future of the world. Uh, of course, that looks like he gets to say one sentence saying he supported sensible carbon pricing. Uh, and that's as much as we're going to get from him. But like, I think this is an interesting scene to see finally seeing conservatives move towards that uh, sort of way. And of course, Bob Inglis from the United, uh, United States was a senator uh, who said we should, who basically lost his seat uh, or uh, in a primary because he said that we should do something about climate change and lost to a Tea Party. And he sort of started this really interesting thing called Republic N, which you can check, uh, which is you know, probably environmental space. He's the only one, I think, still. But it's a very, it's interesting uh, Twitter feed to follow if you want to follow that. Um, but so that's, what we're, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this transition from, from uh, I think, maybe, hopefully, uh, in conservative thought that perhaps this other type of thought is possible. Uh, but, of course, another question is what else do we do? And, Deirdre, uh, you, uh, so you covered another story today, this week, uh, which is sort of one of the other things. Like, there's so many different types of renewable technology coming out. Uh, and each it's almost hard to keep up. And this is another one that's being sold in the Bay of Fundy. Tell us about that. Yes, the newest the newest in the world of renewable energy in Canada is uh, is tidal power, and uh, it's finally coming to the Bay of Fundy. It's interesting that it's taken so long, given that we're surrounded by so much water. Um, but it is coming. Um, actually, it came in 2009, but uh, it failed. Uh, the second installation is coming to the base. Sorry, Deirdre, if yes. I can just jump in, that's a really, really important point, and that was the, like the only thing I wanted to say on that story was <laughs> yeah. the the idea that the the turbine the, the 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 forces in the Bay of Fundy are so strong that they tore their test yeah, one to they pieces, it. It just shredded it. <laughs> oh, yeah, but tidal power. There's no future <laughs> tidal power. It just owned the there test, no energy up, the, the test turbine we put in and we had to build a bigger stronger one because there's too much power yeah but there's no future in time there's no there's no future in renewables <laughs> just get that straight <laughs> mother nature is badass <laughs> so badass um yeah so the first one is coming in actually the next few weeks it's getting on a boat in uh, the first week of june it's going to travel around nova scotia until it reaches the test site uh which is run by the fundy Ocean Research Center for Energy um, off of Parosboro, Nova Scotia. Um, and it is hoped to generate enough energy around two, two megawatts of energy 
um, to power a thousand homes, uh, which is, I mean, significant for a country of 36 million. Um, and this thing is going to be monstrous. I mean, it's it's going to be five stories high. Um, it's gonna it's weighs apparently a thousand tons, <laughs> and uh, and there's another one coming as well. So um, the next one is coming through BlackRock Title. The first one is through Cape Sharp Title. Um, so it's run through two companies, both through the um, Fundy Ocean Research Center for Energy or Force, um, which is uh, bringing in different companies to to test in their facilities. Um, the second one is set to um, head out in 2017, and it's going to be 2.5 megawatts, um, which is a little, it, it seems like a little a little more power, but it's run actually off 40 smaller turbines instead of one big turbine. Um, so we'll see how that fares in the test facility, um, but it's supposed to be easier for maintenance. Um, that's why they did smaller turbines versus bigger turbines. But anyway, um, it's a it's big, big couple of years for for tidal energy which Amazing. is really exciting that's yeah uh, tidal energy is always one that i find so fascinating because it seems to make so much sense yeah uh, and i i feel like it's one of those things i would love to dig into at one point to really understand what the what's really holding it back mm-hmm. uh, and if it's holding if it's being held back just because the tidal waves are so strong that it's crushing our turbines <laughs> uh that's that's darren pointed out it's quite an ironic problem to have um, <laughs> too much power exactly <laughs> Uh, so, so the, the, and what's it's what's interesting is to hear all of these, and I think that's the the often you get from from the environmental movement when you hear the sort of pushback, like we what about coals? Like, sure, coal's a thing, but we have like these massive th- turbines that can that can <laughs> that can harness the, the tidal power now. Uh, I understand that you want to still keep burning rocks, but there's there's something cooler we could be doing, uh, and and maybe we should invest in that. Like, that's for me the number one reaction I always have against uh, carbon capture and storage mm-hmm. uh, is that it's always used as this example of this like cool new technology we could have and I'm like, there are like it's, it's sure it's cool and interesting if you pull it off but there's also really other cool things um, it's that, like Captain Planet in real life <laughs> exactly <laughs> just like, like 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 Captain Planet. The great thing about Captain Planet was that he was always was way too powerful for any problem they ever had. He was the kind of ma- oil. exactly. Yeah. It, it kind of set us up for a false sense of uh, yeah, like exactly. a false sense of power there as youngins. <laughs> yeah, where's Captain Planet? Also, it's because we don't have the love ring or whatever the third one, the fifth one was. The uh, heart, the, the heart. There we go. Uh, but Sabina, you want to jump in? No, I just wanted to make a comment on the carbon capture and storage. It's uh, the main reason why they people really like it and say it's a new exciting technology. It's not new. It's like 25 years old or 30 years old and it's been around for a really long time it's just nobody ever decided to put it in all of the different um, in all of the different facilities because it was going to be a little bit more expensive but the main reason why a lot of people like it is that they don't have to change the way that they're doing things now it's a lot cheaper and they can just say oh why don't we just add a couple of scrubbers and uh, you know we'll capture the carbon or most of it so that's why all of these other ones because even looking here at, for tidal power, they say that, you know, even though it does give us a lot of um, green energy and renewable energy, it's really expensive up at first. So it's like a lot of people have to put in that investment or else they're not going to get any new technology. Well, that, that's something that's always really frustrated me, Sabina, because like, you know, I think um, I, I don't have the number in front of me because I just thought of this now. So this is off the top of my head. But uh, it, somewhere in the billions of dollars have been collected by the Alberta government. 
uh, to uh, under their carbon tax, which got redirected back to oil companies to work on carbon capture and storage on CCS technology. If we'd just taken $5 billion and built $5 million, billion, billion with a B, $5 billion worth of wind turbines, the problem would be solved already. We don't need it. Like it's the, it's the most stupidly, frustratingly desperate plea, uh, which which brings me back to Brad Wall. I do have a couple comments about that, but I'll stop for now. I'll, I'll get my shot in. Well, right. Just, just uh, one, one thing to note is that they haven't actually released the cost of this machine, um, but they know that around $33 million in contracts have been awarded. So it is providing work to people, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, and also what's interesting is that um, uh, I looked into what a megawatt is and how much power it produces, but it really depends on the type of energy um, it produces. Um, so solar is actually kind of inefficient in that it, the, it takes more megawatts to power uh, more homes. So um, I think that's another reason people are still all about the carbon energy because it's a little more efficient than solar. But tidal, I don't know. I'm, I'd be interested to know about how efficient that is. Cool. Thanks. Uh, so, Darren, uh, we have about three or four minutes left uh, cool. before we get into the break. So you have some thoughts on Brad Wall. Yeah, well, let me shotgun the, the basically the, the three um, – the, the three main ones. First one was actually all the way back to Trump, which was – I want to make a point that I, I'm certainly not the first person to say it, but I, I think it needs to be said frequently enough that we di- that we keep it in mind when mm-hmm. anyone is discussing uh, Donald Trump, uh, which is that if you've been paying even the slightest cursory attention to his entire campaign, um, he doesn't mean a word of anything that he says, anything. He doesn't mean a word of it. Right, he'll come out on day one, and, and the thing is, it's very obvious what his strategy is. If you're actually paying attention, what his strategy is was he understands he he understands one very basic fact uh, as a marketer, which is the most critical thing to understand, which is that in politics, when you're t- especially when you're talking about a low information right wing voter, once you say something they like, they stop listening. So all he's been doing his entire campaign has been to go to a group of people, tell them something they're going to like, get them to to cheer him and make him sound really cool. And he tells you, hey, I'm with you guys. And then he goes to the next town hall and says something completely different. He's currently on energy producers because he's making his way systematically through a bunch of sectors that he needs support from. And he's currently saying a bunch of stuff about how he's going to bring coal and all this stuff. He hasn't looked through any of it. He doesn't, I mean, I, I wouldn't expect him to care about climate change, so that doesn't shock me. Um, but I would not take any, any, any certainty uh, of his position on any topic whatsoever. This is entirely, now, does that mean I don't think he's going to do it? Totally. Uh, I actually think that if he was to win, he has no interest. He's a marketer. He likes being in the center of attention. He has no interest in being an actual CEO. In fact, he said he was said that if he was elected president, he is he doesn't he wouldn't even consider himself the COO, uh, much less the CEO. He just wants to be. He just wants to. He just wants the attention, right? So in reality, if we had a Trump presidency, um, the Republican establishment would be the people actually making these political decisions. He has no interest in actual governance. Now that's terrifying because they're <laughs> monsters. Um, so we should still be. A afraid. I'm not telling people not to be afraid, but keep in mind that nothing he says has any connection to act, any actual intention. He contradicts himself twice in the same sentence on multiple occasions, much less the fact that he's full of it. So just keep that in mind. Very, very quickly on Brad Wall uh, as well. I don't see him as the same sort of person. Uh, I think something we have to keep in mind, I, I really want to get our, I'm blanking on his name, but our, our guest that came in uh, on the show and was actually from Saskatchewan, our, not our I guest. I wasn't there. Co-host. Uh, I'm, he's he's going to be listening right now. He's going to be so mad at me. I'm sorry. Uh, somebody who came in and was contributing with the show and we're going to have him back in. It's actually from Saskatchewan and he has a lot of information. He was if you're share. a man from Saskatchewan and can walk to CIUT, we need right to now, talk to you. Uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just being hideous and, and blanking on somebody's name right now. I apologize. But anyway, the, the point being um, – 
is that I, I don't think we're, we're looking at the same thing. I think Brad Wall probably is not an evil person. Mm. I think probably what the situation is, my honest assessment of it is, is that he has publicly gotten behind a certain position and a certain tone. And when you make a complete stand on an issue and extremely publicly, especially as a politician, it is virtually impossible to walk it back, especially when it's the main crux and, and all of your voters agree with it. It doesn't matter how many times. The thing is, he can't. It's not that he won't concede that he's he's made an error. He can't concede that he's made an error because uh, it would not only uh, – he would be just let go from – like he would be gone. He would never work in politics mm -hmm. again. Um, and they would guarantee that the conservatives lose the next three elections in the, in Saskatchewan. So it's it, – it, he, yes, he's doing horrible things and he's saying incredibly stupid stuff, but I don't think there's any point in arguing with him because he will never concede because he can't concede. And I don't think that's because I, I think he probably does know he's wrong. Uh, and there, he just, he, he, it's impossible for him to admit it. So I just think that we should keep that in mind and, and just, and let go of any attempt of trying to bully him into changing his position. Mm -hmm. We need to go around him and we need to get rid of him. He's, he's in, he's in, he's locked himself into a corner. He can't walk out of it's a waste of time to talk mm -hmm. to him. Uh, you have the name. Yeah, Clark Barr. Thank you, Clark. Yeah. We love you if you're listening, Clark. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's that, that lets me sort of wrap up the segment in a, in a way. Thank you, Dave, for bringing it back to Brad Wall because I think that's the the one thing I wanted to sort of highlight to some extent in this in this in this piece is that Brad Wall I think is an old stock Canadian. I know. <laughs> I think Brad Wall. Thank you, Darren. I got I got one. I almost got a spit take out of Darren. Uh, Brad Wall is is kind of I think you know he he does deeply care about the people, uh, but he's just you know he just isn't. In touch with what's happening now. Uh, I think I think Donald Trump is just the Joker and just isn't a part of reality. Mm. Uh, or is like playing the Joker from the Batman films, where right. on the way out of the house, Heisty shoots all his co-conspirators so that he gets he's the only one that takes the money. Yeah, so exactly. like new new Joker, new not Joker, old Joker, new Joker. <laughs> uh, and and then I think Patrick Brown is the theoretical uh, face of new conservatism, which I think is equally dis is, con is concerning in different ways. Uh, but at least is like taking reality as it is, which is nice. <laughs> And welcome back to the Green Majority. That I appreciate a song that really just demands its title be known. Yeah, you know, it's like it's the. Uh, I feel like it's uh, there's a there's a level of respectability there. Uh, but welcome back to the Green Majority on eighty nine point five CIUT FM uh, or any one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the across the uh, Canada or in the states or of course Rabble.ca or on our podcast GreenMajority.ca to find that. And today we are now uh, once again in we are in studio again full studio. We've had we have we're last we had, in the first section. I did not introduce our last chair. Uh, so I'll go introduce everyone again. Of course, thank you, Sabina Hyseni, Deirdre Leonita, Darren Kaster, and now Barbara Gatilova uh, from the Canadian Environmental Law Association uh, is here to talk about the cap and trade program that just got instituted or just got passed, I think, a week or two ago in Ontario. Uh, but first, explain what the Canadian Environmental Law Association is. Thanks, Stefan, uh, and thanks for having me. So I'm the articling student at the Canadian Environmental Law Association. And for those of you who are not in the legal profession, articling means lawyer in training. We just have funny words for things. <laughs> um, the Canadian Environmental Law Association is a legal aid clinic that focuses on environmental law. So our mandate is to work with low-income individuals, community groups, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, and we work on... Uh, issues of environmental law and environmental justice, uh, issues of law reform and advancing environmental justice concerns using the legal tools in Ontario. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, and of course, you guys released a, a couple months ago, you released a briefing note on the law. 
uh, and, and a whole report on, on, on the law yes. uh, called Fair and Equitable Carbon Pricing Comments on Ontario's Cap-and-Trade Program. Uh, so uh, if I can ask you to sort of summarize those comments... Um, or, 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 or what's your again? Cap and trade, of course, is constantly to put us into a larger context. Cap and trade is consistently considered one of the two main ways to have carbon pricing. People say price on carbon is the holy grail of, of, uh, of. of of, of carbon reducing policy, mm-hmm. uh, it's always it's cap and trade or carbon tax. Usually, uh, the two that are referred. There's a whole bunch of other ones, but those are the two main ones. And so, the Ontario said cap and trade, and you guys sort of actually read their went through what they were proposing, uh, and and what do you see? Um, do you mean just in general what the proposal is right now? Yeah, and then yeah, the proposal, then we'll then we'll get into sort of Sila's response to that. Sure. So. Um yeah, so Ontario decided that they're going to go with cap and trade, and this is following um, more than a year now, I think, of public consultations and, and going through uh, different rounds of different options. Um, and they finally settled on cap and trade bill, and the uh, the proposal came out in February, if I remember correctly. There's, this has been uh, multiple uh, multiple sections to this. Um, so the so Bill One Seventy Two, the Climate Change Mitigation and Low Carbon Economy Act. Um, that just got passed last week, uh, as you mentioned, establishes cap-and-trade program in Ontario. And so the diff- the main features of a cap-and-trade program, um, as opposed to a carbon tax, is that it would set a hard cap on carbon emissions across the economy. So the Ontario cap-and-trade doesn't actually cover all of um, all of the uh, emissions in Ontario, and they rarely do, just because a lot of emissions are kind of a lot of emitters are way too small to be captured under this. But so the Ontario Cap and Trade Program um, captures about 85% of Ontario's emissions, which is pretty great, um, and it sets a hard cap across the economy on how much carbon um, carbon dioxide equivalent can be released per year, and then that cap decreases by just over 4% per year. And so idea, the idea is that um, the participants of the cap-and-trade program, which is large emitters over 25,000 tons, um, as well as electricity importers, natural gas distributors, and petroleum suppliers, uh, the participants to this program have to essentially give up an allowance for every ton of carbon dioxide equivalent that they emit. Um, so uh, that's where the that's where the trade comes in because one of the things you can do is trade allowances with other emitters who have reduced uh, reduced their emissions more effectively than you did or um, or for whom it's it's cheaper. So the basic feature of this is that there's um, the four ways that emitters can receive an allowance is you can purchase it from the government, which is how government is generating revenue in this program. Uh, you can trade with other emitters, as I mentioned. There's also free allowances that the government is uh, giving out to certain emitters um, just to kind of ease them into this program. And then there's a smaller percentage of allowances can be um, can be met through offsets or early reduction credits. And this is how the rest of the emissions, those, those 15% of the economy can get um, can get kind of can fall under the plan. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so, so that's the so and of course the 
What's interesting about this is it's, it's usually considered the more free market approach to putting a price on carbon. The idea, of course, is one, if you have a – you just make carbon releasing a, a, a now and a no longer unlimited resource uh, and you price it. It's a way to price externalities, which is something that, of course, we say probably every show. I'd love – if you go back and listen to every one of these shows and tell you so – if we've said price externalities at every show, I'd be really impressed with us. Uh, but, uh, but, of course, and there's, there's criticisms of, of, of both a carbon tax and a cap and trade. Uh, but both of them have uh, one similar concern, uh, which obviously Sila highlights in your brief, which is sort of the regressive effects of carbon mm-hmm. pricing, or what could be regressive, re- regressive effects of carbon pricing. Can you sort of explain that to me? Sure. So, and we are a legal aid clinic, so obviously our interest is in how this affects low income and vulnerable communities. And I think this is an interest that the environmental community as, as a large should care about when we look at this from the perspective of climate justice, right? Um, so low-income communities are already disproportionately more affected by climate change to begin with, and they're more disproportionately affected by carbon pricing, which tends to raise the price of um, of fuel, of electricity, of, of these kinds of daily products that, um, frankly, low-income people have a harder time changing their habits or maybe if you know if they're renting an apartment they don't have control over their uh over over how their energy is being used so uh, we've been advocating throughout this this consultation process um for certain measures that would make this program um kind of take that into account and ease the ease the transition for low-income people um, and there's actually some. There have been some interesting gains uh, from you know if you look at the the proposal uh, as it was first pr- put forward in February and then as it stands right now. So the um, the other features of the program that I didn't mention is the greenhouse gas reduction account, which is what they call the the fund where all the money will be put into. So that will then be the government will then use money from from the greenhouse gas reduction account to fund. Um, projects that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the things that, that's a very positive change is that um, the, the minister in determining which programs to fund uh, has to also look at whether the program will help low-income individuals in achieving, achieving greenhouse gas reductions or mitigating some of the impact of carbon pricing. Amazing. Um, so there's t- there's two other quick things I want to cover. The first one is uh, is this idea of the, the the vulnerable community's low potential to reduce emissions. Uh, before I get to that, I, I, I sort of want I want to jump back to a news story we've been trying to cover for the last two weeks, uh, which is the the leaked document about the seven billion dollars that that the Ontario government is is going to put into into fighting climate change. Because uh, first of all, seven billion dollars is a huge number and is all like and is is a is a impressive step for any government to make. Uh, but what's, what I found interesting is sort of when I was reading your Sila's brief and then comparing it to to, to this to to the the money that's being put out. When you look at the money where the money is going, you know. Three point eight billion dollars of the money uh, of this leaked document claimed that the money will end up going to new grants, rebates, and other subsidies to retrofit buildings, move them off natural gas to geothermal or solar or other forms of electric heat. Uh, that's a super. I think that's actually a very progressive attempt to to get rid of natural gas, which is not considered a low hanging fruit more often than not. But at the same time, as you mentioned, isn't necessarily going to help low income families because what are the chances low income families owns their own house or can afford 
to get sort of rebate on 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 retrofitting when they don't actually own the space. Uh, and you see sort of that when you go through some of the other other things, uh, you know, new building code rules work our homes and small buildings to be built in 2030 or later to be heated without using fossil fuels or natural gas. Same sort of thing, right? You know, these pe- these people aren't reducing that either. Uh, there's electric vehicle incentives, but again, electric vehicle. One of the cha- how many people actually buy elect buy new vehicles? You know, that the, the, you have to, there's a very specific subset of people who are actually going to afford to buy new vehicles. So any sort of incentive to buy electric vehicles is great, but that's still only affecting people who are buying new vehicles. Right. Uh, and and you can so you go through all of them. You know, arguably you get down to some of the later ones. It's, you get some ones that are actually a little more a little a little more online with you know bringing people up. For for example, two hundred million to build more cycling infrastructure, three hundred fifty four million to to the Go Regional Rail Network, and there's uh, two hundred eighty million to help school buses buy electric buses. That one's a sort of just a random one, but I like it. So I'm <laughs> so I'm mentioning it. Uh, but then again, you know, another one point two billion goes to factories and other industrial businesses to cut emissions. And so clearly, there, the, what's interesting about this is all of this really feels framed in trying to reduce the most emissions, which is important. But not so much of the thought seems to be going into the sort of helping these lower income communities uh, come back. So I'm interested if there's any sort of things that CELA recommends the government to do specifically to help low income communities, or if it's more of just a general ask. Well, I, I wanted to touch back on on a couple of things sure. that you said there, and going from from the end of what you said, it seems like that a lot of the uh, a lot of the way that these investments are judged is based on how much emission reduction can we get right now mm. per dollar invested, and in some ways that may not be the best uh, strategy because you end up investing into the low hanging fruit, like you mentioned, and not investing into more long term you know larger capital investments that won't pay off until later on down the line, and what we could end up with is Okay, great. Well, we invested a lot of money into this low-hanging fruit. And what do we do now? Now we need to. Now we need a lot more dollars per greenhouse gas reduction. Um, so that's one thing that efficiency may not always be the best. Uh, the best metric. And with regards to the uh, specifically investments for for low-income um, individuals, I mean, I don't know. I can't. I can't speak to the leaked document. I haven't looked through it, and I mean. It, it, it would be interesting to see the final version once it actually comes out. There was an announcement actually yesterday, I believe, um, where Ontario government is investing $900 million over four years into retrofitting social housing apartments specifically. That's, that's $500 million of it, and then $400 million into um, rebates and investment for rental apartments for, for energy efficiency projects. So... I think we need more of targeted investment like that, like social social housing um, investments. And there have been a lot of. Uh, I mean, this is this is one example of a pretty substantial investment that would be that would be very beneficial. So it's good, it's important to recognize that. With regards to natural gas, that can get that can get a little bit tricky. It's not. I mean, natural gas is a fossil fuel, but. If you're t- if you're looking at it from the perspective of uh, of low income, you know, remote northern communities, for example, um, it's still a lot efficient than electricity in some ways, and the electricity grid really is only green as as green as as, as your grid, grid as as the energy <laughs> that goes into it, right? So there's a lot of concerns there, and I think we should we should be focusing more on conservation, um, but for for people who you know need heating right now, um, natural gas may end up being the more efficient um, fuel compared to, um, you know, using using oil, for example, or, right. or different kind of sources. So it's not it's not as clear cut 
um, as, okay, this is a carbon fuel, so we need to get rid of it. There, there's got to be more that, that goes into thinking through this and thinking the cost for right. low-income communities. You're, you're saying that complexity exists? This is yeah, unacceptable I mean, on the show, Barbara. I'm, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> sound <laughs> bite, sound bite, sound bite. Uh, uh, Darren, uh, you want to jump in the question? I have a sound bite. Oh, you have a sound bite. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, really fast. One, I, I, I don't make a... Uh, Premier Wynn does not always make it easy to be a fan of hers. She's a very complicated character. And I, and I mean that ge genuinely as I said it. I, mm. Sometimes I'm a huge fan, sometimes not so much. You know, she makes it difficult to be a, to be a complete cheerleader for her sometimes. Uh, but I, I think I want to cut her some slack here on, on one thing, which is that, uh, you know, we do just remind everybody part of the, the, the issue we have of why we point out frequently on the show, but why it's so difficult to get some of this stuff passed. Um, she does have to deal with an election cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think by throwing, uh, gobs of money at a bunch of low-hanging fruit. I think what her strategy is, uh, because they have been threatened by other parties, uh, regardless of what the vote says, they've been, you know, uh, pretty threatened by other parties, several, you know, elections in a row. Um, and I think what her goal is, considering there was a couple of scandals earlier, uh, you know, valid or not, earlier in her career, definitely a couple of moves that, that peeved off her base uh, with regard to selling uh, infrastructure and stuff like this, that she needs a couple of wins that can be demonstrated to be wins on this front before they go to the next election. Um, and I think if I want to cut her some slack, the plan is get this stuff in, get it generating um, benefits that people see and like, so they can go, yeah, yeah, we want more of this. And then at the beginning of a next uh, uh, you know, assignment. Um, she can try and find some money for some of this other stuff. Uh, I, I think that's actually politically savvy, whether or not I think that it's environmentally the best thing to do. Mm. Um, and on the, uh, the the other thing, just really, really quickly, um, and at the end of the article here from the Global Mail about the leaked document uh, with regards to low income, uh, it, there's a bit from uh, uh, the, the energy minister, uh, Mr. Shirelli, uh, acknowledged uh, that there had been a debate about the cabinet meeting. Uh, I'm not quoting from the article, but said it ended with 100% consensus on the climate plan. And he said, quote, we have a normal amount of debate on the issue. If you were to leak every, uh, every cabinet meeting, you'd find out, you know, that there's a good amount of airing of points on views on all issues. And then asked if uh, Mr. Murray, uh, who was in charge of the plan, uh, had to change or water down the plan to get to cabinet to buy in. Uh, he apparently cracked a grin and said, you know what? I'd be breaking my oath if I told you that. You know that. Which you should read as yes. Of course, yes. So my uh, assessment is that that's who got screwed in that compromise mm. was the low income stuff. That's just a guess. I have no evidence, but that's my assumption. Well, and, and just to go back to complexity, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes into it. And if you look at carbon pricing, it affects so many aspects of, of our economy and, and so many people will be affected. It's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly who, what the what changes needed to be made to the plan to get it passed yeah and i think uh, what's interesting about that is i think the the difference between the the fight between environment and energy minister actually is a really interesting one specifically on this issue because of the fact that the number one case against most environment initiatives is that it raises the cost of energy uh, so as an as an energy minister who wants to keep you know you know who wants to keep energy prices as low as possible again to which which would obviously have benefit everyone including low income uh, individuals uh, it, it's an interesting fight to be having over this over this particular thing right uh, but but I want to get one more question in uh, before we go to the break because 
because I, I think it's the last piece of I think it's uh, perhaps in my mind the 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 number one piece that differentiates uh, low differentiates carbon pre- carbon tax from cap and trade, uh, which is the idea of some people get free allowances because mm-hmm. uh, you know cap carbon tax is really just a is just you know is a tax and you walk away with it. It's very it's it's, it's usually it's pitch, pitch is a really simple solution um, or literally at least an easier way to walk away from. Uh, whereas this one has so many all these little pieces and, and whenever a carbon uh, cap and trade program has has collapsed or has got issues, it's when there are too many of these free allowances hanging around. Uh, and I, so does uh, you guys obviously um, have the part of that in your briefing. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about what these free allowances do. So the free allowances, uh, so the allow an allowance is uh, something that every emitter needs to give up for every ton of carbon emissions that they that they produce. So when they get a free allowance, it's essentially like a, a subsidy, right? They would otherwise have to pay for that allowance or or reduce um, reduce their emissions by that amount. Um, and so the the government looks at which industries in Ontario are energy intensive and trade exposed, which kind of puts them at a at a uh, what they call a higher uh, risk of leakage. So the idea is that if if you charge them too much, they'll move somewhere else and there will be no uh, greenhouse gas reductions because they'll just pollute in a different jurisdiction. I think this is becoming less of a concern as more and more jurisdictions actually do implement carbon pricing. But, um, I mean, our position is that way too many free allowances have, have been allocated. So, I mean, they haven't been actually allocated, but they, it, you know, emitters have to apply for that. But looking at the... Um, looking at the regulations, it seems like there's a lot that's that's going to go to industry. Um, I mean, if you look at carbon tax, I don't know that much about the Alberta plan, but my understanding is that the Alberta carbon tax also has, you know, different uh, provisions tax- for different. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I mean, everything could be implemented in a way that's that's simple and in a way that's more complex. This is just something where we'll have to. We, we now have carbon pricing, which is amazing. This is a really great win for Ontario, and we'll just have to keep watching and making sure that we do get the carbon reductions that we should be getting and that that it's being done in a in a, um, a sustainable, sustainable way. Sustainable way, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Barbara Gakolova. Uh, I want to give you one last chance to sort of uh, a any last thoughts you sort of might have you might want to cover on this topic, or alternatively, just let us know where if someone is interested in Sela and the work that uh, that you all do over there, uh, where they can find about find more about you. I'm going to do the latter because okay. on our website Sela.ca, which is C E L A. .ca, you can read all the reports that we've written on this issue, of which there are many, which would be a lot better than 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 last thoughts but yeah it's an it's an exciting new thing for ontario and we just got to keep watching and and see how it develops amazing thank you so much barbara And welcome back to the Green Majority. We actually listen, we let you listen to the whole song that time here on CAT A nine point five, which is a, which is a rare one. But we were digging it, and then we got in a, a whole conversation uh, actually about other cap and trade stuff, which uh, from Sabina, which we'll actually save for the bonus show. So check out the bonus show on GreenMajority.ca for that. Uh, thank you again for listening and for Rabble.ca support and all of the wonderful radio syndicates of the Green Majority. We love you all and hope you're all having a wonderful day. Uh, but we still have ten minutes left of this show, uh, and Darren 
Darren, uh, we've been talking about feisty weedies a couple times <laughs> off air, so I'll bring that back up <laughs> on air. Uh, Darren has some feisty weedies about Exxon and their shareholder. Uh, so, Darren, lead us in that news story. I, I just want to say first that that's the first time in my entire life I've ever made a thing. So thank you, <laughs> Stephen. Well, feisty weedies is yeah. it. Yeah, uh, that, that's I'm going to go it on a high note. Uh, so it's really funny. So, I mean, it's not strange. We've had over the last several years a lot of um, a lot of stories of people, you know, doing very showy, trying to get in as journalists and then sort of either being in as journalists and like, you know, t- leaking stuff that makes people look bad at, at shareholder meetings and, and annual general meetings, AGMs for major corporations. We had an interesting thing. Uh, I think it was two years ago now. I'm just going from memory. Sorry. Um of a guy that went in and what was it really? It was a really funny story, Stefan. I don't know if you remember this one. Uh, it was a guy that went in. I don't remember what company it was. It, I think it might've been a coal uh, and he went into an auction. It was a, a public auction or he bought and he placed like a $10 million auction bid on, yeah. uh, on attractive land and successfully kept it from the coal company. So they jailed him for making a fake bid, but because of the rules, they couldn't actually take his bid out. So they could get him in trouble for not being able to bake the, uh, pay the bid that he made, but he still successfully prevented because of the rules, uh, successfully, it still had to stand. So he still, pre- at least temporarily successfully prevented this coal, uh, company from buying the land mm-hmm. that he was going to then coal. So he essentially traded the, you know, the coal development for a jail <laughs> sentence, which, you know, big up for him. Yeah. Um, but this stuff like this, right. And so there's, there's, it's not new to have people, uh, you know, go into places and I, and I, I'm of mixed feelings on this. I think in some places is incredibly valid and incredibly legitimate. And in fact, is something I would encourage in certain situations In other situations, I think it's either badly done or not, you know, legitimately not appropriate or sometimes taken out on the wrong targets. So, you know, don't quote me as being for or against, you know, uh, interrupting AGMs or busting into shareholder meetings. I, I, I treat that sort of thing on a case by case basis. You know, what's not okay <laughs> The Guardian is uh, is one of the uh, the world's largest and most sort of recognized uh, news agencies. Uh, I would, and I would say very well respected. Very as well respected. As, as and as that, that was actually going to be part of my point was that, you know, despite the fact that they're, you know, I, I think arguably it's inarguable to say that they're not left leaning, mm-hmm. if you will. They have lefty inclinations. One of the few papers you'll find anywhere, at least in the English speaking world, that actually still maintains an environment section, which is Kevin's old uh, uh, axe to grind. Mm-hmm. Um and a very, very, very well-populated one, I might add. Um, so they're not exactly right-wing. That being said, they're extremely well-respected. And part of the reason why they get away with what they – or get away with – part of the reason they've been so successful is because, you know, at their inclinations aside, they they tend to be extremely even-handed and tend not to sort of blow things out of proportion or be hyperbolic. Um, they tend to just be actually good journalists. They tend to do good journalism. Um, and, and with respect to both directions. So the fact that recently Exxon Mobil, the, uh, and just to remind people, this is the, uh, the same company that, uh, is potentially going to be going to court and, uh, you know, is, has already been hung in the court of public opinion, opinion, uh, about denying and, and being will actively knowing about climate change, actively knowing that greenhouse gases contribute to climate change and paying hundreds of millions of dollars for the next 40 years to keep this fact that they knew was true from the public so that they could keep making money, uh, has banned the guardian from their AGM, (laughs) uh, and accused the newspaper of lacking objectivity on climate change reporting in a campaign against energy companies. Well, you could view it that way. You, you could also say that you're 
uh, you know, uh, you know, being litigated against, or at least in the process of being litigated against for lying for 40 years about this. Um, so it seems a little bit ridiculous, but this, this story is paired. I mean, and like, like the, really the only thing, there's not really much more to say about it other than the fact that, um, this is now the corner <clears throat> that some of these companies have painted themselves into. And, and I wanted to take a moment funnily enough, and this is not where you're expecting me to go with this, but I wanted to take a minute to, <clears throat> to say here that, I think now, now that we've started to win, we, it, it's, it's undeniable that we may have started to win too late. So mm. this isn't this isn't any sort of thing like that. We may still be screwed, and and the utmost pressure still needs to be kept up. Yes. but we did start to get some wins recently, and and it looks like the the pendulum is sort of at least you know balancing out the momentum's coming to a to a slow, which may not be fast enough again, but still. Uh, we've chalked up some wins recently. And and I wanted to take this opportunity to say that all carbon producing, uh, major carbon producing industries such as uh, uh, like natural resources, so uh, coal and, and natural gas and all this sort of thing, uh, are not made equally. Some of them are you know, ignorant. Some of them are doing what you would expect any organism to do in an ecosystem, which is protect itself. Uh, which I think is the most useful way to speak about corporations on a planet is that they're an organism trying to, you know, breed and, and be successful. And, you know, these, I, I, I find the, the evolution and, and, uh, uh, ecosystem type metaphor to be extremely useful, uh, when talking about, uh, economic issues and, uh, and, uh, global, you know, markets. Uh, and some of them just are straight up evil. Uh, and, uh, Mr. Rex Tillerson is now officially on my list up there with the uh, previously solely, uh, CEO of Nestle mm. for worst human beings on the planet. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, you know, while I think they haven't done nearly enough and while I think they've been complicit in, in lying to the public. And I think that there's a hundred million things I could do an entire show on why Suncor is the worst. Um, they are the jewel of my eye compared to Exxon. And I think it's important to take this moment. First of all, that Exxon sucks. Uh, <laughs> their CEO sucks. Uh, they're liars and they're cheaters and they're crooks. Um, and that we need to remember that this is not universally applicable. Um, and that, uh, if there was an opportunity to create some sort of alliance with some of the better companies to make some of this stuff happen, I think that's okay. Uh, as long as it's not Exxon. Uh, so two points there. One, Exxon sucks. Uh, the fact that they're now banning journalists and that their own shareholders have rejected a bunch of plans that successfully made it to their shareholders meeting, fair enough, um, is that this is a lost cause. It's a cancer. Get rid of them. They're done. Cut it out. Get rid of it. Uh, and that, But in the same breath that we should not tack this on to all resource companies or all oil companies, some of them may in fact eventually come around and, uh, and be really big allies in this and become energy companies like we've been asking them to for mm -hmm. quite some time. So that's my rant. Thank you. Cool. Thank you, Darren. Um, yeah, and, and it's, uh, what's funny about that is that that, that is actually the uh, – what I love about what you did there was that it, I, I think it helps us tie this whole show together, uh, which, again, is something that I've been, we've been trying to do for a while, uh, largely because M.A., MMA, who's currently not in studio but is one of our regular hosts, likes us doing. Uh, and so <laughs> I think A it's, sense of closure. It's ex good. Exactly. Exactly. It brings us all together. Uh, so I want to sort of give uh, Deirdre and Sabina a chance to sort of any last thoughts on the show, then I'll sort of give my last thoughts on the show, and then we'll, uh, then we'll throw to the – throw the outro music, uh, which I'm sure you all very much enjoy. Outdoor music, great music. Uh, so, uh, Sabina, do you got a shot? Um, well, I'd just like to say that I really like the uh, having our guests here today uh, talking about the cap and trade, and I hope to talk a little bit f further in the podcast version. So, tune in. Amazing. Deirdre? Exxon. <laughs> Man, <laughs> that thing sucks. 
Um, was, 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 so, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> solid, solid reporting. Exxon sucks. Concise. You can't spell Exxon without two X's. You have uh, to say hashtag uh, Exxon new. Yeah. Um, uh, so, which I've been adding hashtag still does hashtag they suck. <laughs> um, but what I want to get to uh, from the uh, fr- from the sort of final lots of Exxon all the way back to the very beginning is that I think uh, anyone and Darren pointed out the sort of differentiating between some of the companies that are trying to move towards energy companies versus the oil companies is that if there's ever going to if there's going to be one major shift uh, in the next 20, 30 years, I think it's going to be this. This 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 final realization from quote unquote business people that climate change is a thing and it has to be taken seriously. Uh, and I think if if if, any, if there's any wins at all that we're seeing, it's that slowly but surely the you can be a conservative and still accept climate change. Yeah. I just had a great idea for what we should talk about on the bonus show, Stephen. All right, we should talk about whether or not it would be successful in the green movement to say to pit these companies against each other. And say, we're all, as consumers, yes, we're still forced to buy oil to some degree. Many of us still have to drive. We're still largely consumers, even though we want to get away from this economy. What if we took this as an indication and said, guess what? Suncor will make you a deal. Hmm. Uh, And maybe a couple other ones that are sort of like edging in the right direction. We'll make you a deal. For the oil that we do have to buy, we will 100% boycott Exxon. You guys get, we're going to crash them. You guys get all their market share if you agree to be a little bit more forceful in your transition of your portfolio over to green energy. And then we sink these jerks into the sea. <laughs> <laughs> like um, tomorrow. <laughs> as long as Sabina also gets to talk about the cap and trade stuff. Uh, but and I think, but I think that's what I think is funny about that is that to go back to again to call back earlier, I, what's funny about trying to do that kind of energy boycott to some extent is it's the same reason it's difficult for the same reason why Trump saying that he wants the United States to be energy independent is is a little bit ludicrous because oil is a global market, uh, and so the idea that it doesn't matter how much quote unquote energy the United States necessarily makes, you're still going to be a you still will be a part of the energy system that's connected. You can't be that you cannot separate yourself from the world uh but we're about we've done one last minute so if i think i can give one call out uh, or thought for the day uh it's the look follow this trend see if this is actually something you think believe in and tweet us uh, at us uh if, if you if you have any thoughts on it about whether or not uh, we are actually seeing a, a movement of conservatives conservatives towards uh towards climate change uh and whether or not this cap and trade system uh using the market is the way to sort of get them on side because i think car- i think the word tax in it of course cannot be even uttered by a by a conservative uh and so this idea of a cap and trade which just sounds different, even though it does it the exact same thing, uh, is somehow okay because uh, it's the market. Uh, and it's, it's like, it's this funny little difference, but I think that might be the real answer for getting, uh, for getting everyone back on side. And because to some extent, uh, we'll need everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter who which side. We'll need the Trumpites. We'll need literally everybody to solve this crisis. So the sooner we can convince and get our friends, uh, you know, our uncle who may say the wrong things at dinner, but to actually <laughs> right, but actually to accept climate change, uh, the better off we are. And with that, thank you so much, everybody. This is an agreement joined on CAT eighty nine point five. If you're on the bonus show, we'll be right back. If not, have a great green week. We'll see y'all real soon. That was the main show today, a big theme of talking about old and new. And uh, in the bonus show, we're going to talk a little bit about as well about what what can we do to get some of those uh, other voters and create uh, a bigger turnout. Not necessarily sure that it's a great idea, but I think it was worth discussing. And uh, also a fun anecdote about video games. 
I promise it's interesting. Uh, stay tuned for the bonus show, but first, a quick reminder that if you can, are willing and able, we really could use your support. A uh, number of volunteers go put in many, many volunteer hours each week to produce this show, and uh, we do have some costs like the website and a few other things. Uh, and of course, a full work day, which is usually done by me, but uh, while I've been ill, uh, many of my volunteers have been excellent about covering my time, but uh, if you're able to help support the show, we'd really appreciate it. We could really use your help. You can do that at patron.com slash green majority. Patron is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash green majority. All right. So this is Darren. I'm going to start this week's bonus show um, because I'm, I don't have a ton to say, but I'm going to start us off. Uh, I think we'll probably be shorter than usual this week. Uh, it's, it's hot and nice outside, and I think that... Uh, I'm going to go sit in a couch outside. Uh, but one of the two things I wanted to talk about really quickly, and I don't think we'll spend much time on this because I'm not even sure it's necessarily a good idea, but do you think that, um, I want to ask our, our panel, uh, if do you think something along the lines, because we were talking a lot about like conservatives, and so we were talking about a lot about how like has conservative politics changed. But conservative, like politics, whether it be conservative or liberal or anything else, uh, and the voters that they appeal to are not necessarily, in fact, I would argue frequently not, uh, the same thing. They're not interchangeable. So you might find that promoting a certain type of policy gets you a lot of votes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who voted for you agree with it. There's, you know, these things are very complex. So do you think, you know, forgetting the politicians themselves for a minute, do you think that conservative voters would be, so, you know, because we had Ezra Levant and this whole like ethical oil nonsense and whatever, but there, there is a very, you know, whenever I've had online discussions with people and, and I've interacted with actual, you know, humans, as far as I could tell, uh, online, there... One of the biggest things is a sense of national pride around like this is us, this is our industry, these are our jobs, this is Canadian business. And that uh, there's a very, very large sense, not to be under underappreciated sense of uh, patriotism around Canadian companies, regardless of what they do. Um, and so could this, you know, despite the fact that Ezra Levant is a troll of a man and uh, wrong about almost everything he's ever done, um, do you think that the the that chord there that was picked up by him very successfully about the nationalism around uh, energy companies could be used to provide some leverage to conservative voters and say, it, like I was saying on the on the main show there, you know, theoretically, I don't, I don't, I really haven't thought this out enough even to say it's a good idea. So don't anyone email me and say this is a terrible idea. I really haven't thought this through. Um, it just popped into my head. But do you think it, it would? It, there's any room for strategy around saying, okay. Uh, if a Canadian energy company agrees to do significantly more than they're already doing, then we will partner with you to force, you know, either to boycott the other companies that don't agree to these changes or to for to team up with conservative voters and liberal voters together to get a, just a massive plurality of, of the electorate to force these changes on other companies uh, or some sort of punitive measures on them and sort of combine this environmentalism with this not always healthy nationalism into something useful to get drastic action now at the sake of perhaps making some concessions to some of these you know, some limited concessions to some of these national energy companies. Do, what, what do you guys think of that? Uh, I can start. Um, I think that um, having the current oil companies transition into en energy companies is actually like pretty genius idea um, in this transition phase because, um, I mean, they kind of have this weird power over their market. You know, they have this power over... The conservative party, they have the power over conservative voters. Um, and if they start the transition to new kinds of energy, then I think 
I mean, some people will think they're crazy and some people uh, won't agree with them, but I think that it will get a lot of other people on on the side of renewable and clean energy if they, they lead the way. Um, because they're kind of like celebrities in some ways. Like, they have a lot of influence whether they have planned on that or not. And that's partially because of their marketing strategy. Um, they're really good, out of necessity, they're really good at marketing. Um, and I think that's, that's a key to their success. Um, so I, I saw this really, really crazy article the other day, and it was kind of, um, it was marketing coal, but it was marketing it in the most nationalistic, this was in America, in the most nationalistic way possible. And it said, coal question mark, increasingly, <laughs> increasingly red, white, and blue. And I was... <laughs> I was literally shocked at this huge billboard just on the side of some some street in America that it's it's making people believe mm -hmm. that you know like these are jobs for the American people yeah. or for the Canadian people. And what's really shocking to me because I do study sustainability. I've looked at ExxonMobil CSR reports for hours on hours. What's really shocking to me is that they have the capacity to diversify their portfolio. A lot of them already have like a lot of wind. They have wind um wind uh, power plants and they have a lot of like they have a lot of money in which they can change what they're doing right now instead of just pumping more and more money that's going to be wasted on you know pumping oil out of the earth they could just put that money towards diversifying their portfolio and then ensuring that they're going to have a greater return like later on and especially if you're the first one if you're a leader in the industry if you're even thinking like as a normal business person you always want to be a leader in the beginning it's a little bit difficult because you have to pay up front and you have to take a little bit of a risk but if your risk pays off then you're going to always be seen as that leader. So I don't know, I think Suncor is doing a lot more than Exxon is doing in diversifying their portfolio, mm -hmm. but a lot of them have a long way to go. And it would really solve the problem of people saying oil or renewable energy. Mm -hmm. It could literally all be together. And for the people that still do use oil or for the chemical companies that still need you know, petroleum to do some of a lot of their stuff, there can be a small aspect of that in these companies, but most of the energy for the people should be generated through renewable energy. And also the question of should we pit like ExxonMobil or like whatever people against like a certain company, why not? Let's try it. <laughs> Whatever's going to work. But I think that really the main thing is getting people to just literally look at the business case. If you're a businessman, look at the business case. This is going to make you money. I'm, I'm literally shocked to my core that people don't haven't done it yet. If I was the CEO of Suncor, hire me, please. Um, <laughs> I would literally just begin, like diversify this portfolio. But of course, they have a lot of it's co it's complex. But at the end of the day, that's what's going to make you money in the end. <laughs> the one Anyways. the one issue uh, with partnering with a, an oil company to try to uh, encourage um, their transition to green energy. Uh, while making concessions to like allow them to continue some small mm -hmm. part of oil uh, extraction and production is that y the transition really needs to happen quickly. Like this would have been a great plan for yeah. maybe like 30 or 40 years ago or like a yeah. hundred years ago. But, uh, but now it's sort of like if we're, uh, if we're giving up our ground and saying like, it's okay, we'll let you keep extracting oil for a little bit longer you can like transition in a way that makes you comfortable we're sort of giving up 
uh, our our power and like our our purpose um, as as environmentalists when we know how dire the situation is. So I'm I, I like the idea that we could pit companies against each other, uh, possibly by by forming an environmental alliance with the first company who jumps on board. Um, but I just don't know if it would yield uh, a quick enough transition uh, since they would probably demand some concessions on on our end as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think the opportunity is and, and this, of course, is all whiteboarding it. But so, you know, this is all very theoretical. But I mean, the 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 idea there would be that by making this type of argument, you and and let's say theoretically that you were able to pull on not that not the companies, but the conservative voters who are who are very, very keen on this nationalism angle that you wouldn't actually have to make any concessions to the company itself because you now have a plurality of the public. And so the people you're making concessions to are the conservative voters, not the oil company, right? And so what you'd be, so essentially you would be in a position to say, hey, conservative voters, we will help promote your jobs and make sure that the company you're employed by stays in business if you help us force them to take stronger action on climate change. And by the way, this has the consequence of also screwing over the competition, which makes that Canadian company that you're so nationalistic about even stronger uh, part of market share. It'll just be a different, slightly different market. Um, So not... I don't think it's quite the same as sort of the situation you were outlining, but I mean, a lot of the concerns you raised are still exist. And the other thing which we said in between is also still valid, which is um, how is this super different than when some of us got really PO'd about that theoretical deal that was made under the table with the Alberta and the Notley deal? Um, Is that super different? I say it's slightly different, but I would I would concede to an argument that says it's not hugely different. So I think that, yeah, there's there's lots of problems with that plan. I just thought it was an interesting idea. Uh, Does anyone else want to jump in? I have one more thing, but about something Um, else. But well, I. I think it really ties into our power as consumers. Everyone always talks about how, like, we can't really make a difference because it's all in the hands of lobbyists and politicians. But consumers have a huge impact on how the world moves forward. And even if we have to buy oil and gas, um, we can choose which companies that we want to buy those products from. And as companies move forward, companies like Exxon... Um, and Suncor will have to compete for um, green consumers as well as other consumers. So hopefully it drives them forward. And that actually provides a good segue to the other thing. I, I had a funny thought. I was in between, when I finished reading the news articles this morning, I was watching some YouTube videos. And I was one of the things when I'm out of homework is I watch uh, gaming videos. Uh, and there was an interesting story about, there's a, I promise this will be relevant in one second. <laughs> Pro- provide me 30 seconds of backstory and then I promise this will be relevant. Um, so one of the things I was watching was a video about a game that's coming out now by Blizzard. Blizzard are the people that own uh, the most successful, probably, I was going to say the most successful MMO, but probably the most successful and game, uh, profitable game ever made ever, which is World of Warcraft, uh, have just made a new game called Overwatch. Uh, there was, uh, they made an explicit, not an implicit, an explicit, they were very public about the fact that they were trying to be, trying to be a better gaming company. One of the criticisms that came up, and I swear to God, if anyone emails me about Gamergate, I'm just immediately banning you from my, (laughs) blocking you from my email, but, uh, you know, with response to criticism about sexism in the industry, uh, and they said, you know, we've, we've been listening, we're trying to do better. 
Uh, and so they had a they have a, a very well represented. It's a, there's a number of characters you can choose from. I think there's like 12 or 15, and at least half of them are female characters. Uh, they're from a variety of nationalities. Uh, they're not dressed in bikinis. They have more <laughs> re realistic sized you know uh, uh, you know breasts and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, Anisia Sarkozian, uh, who is somebody else, again, if you email me about Gamergate, I will block you. Um, but so the who was the woman who was you know the sort of semi made famous in a bad way because of that story. Uh, was did a response to them saying, uh, you know, in a in a talk, uh, saying, hey, well, you know, sort of good job, uh, but you know, every single one of these females, while they're not wearing bikinis, they're wearing armor. It's still you know breast shaped armor, uh, and they all and yes, they're from a variety of nationalities, but they're all exactly the same body type, and they're all Barbie body types. And to the, well, like a little bit more realistically proportioned, but they're all skinny, they're all tall, they all have long legs. It, like it basically looks like different armor modeled and different skin tones modeled on the exact same character. And so the response to this, Blizzard immediately the next day made a new character of a uh, extremely, uh, like very strong, very, uh, you know, very physically uh, fit, uh, but in a very not, uh, a, a not supermodel body type, a very large body type. Uh, someone who's a Russian character that was sort of, you know, the idea that was, you know, very, was just as, was just as threatening and physically looking as, as many of the male characters. And the response within like 48 hours was to, was to do this. I don't know if they'd planned the character from the future and they had it or they kind of threw it together quickly. Hmm. But this is the type of response you get when you have an industry where there's actually direct feedback and direct consequences. Mm -hmm. Now, now is when we're getting back to the topic. Direct consequences. The video game industry is extremely responsive because all of their customers are online. All of their customers do their homework about their products. Um, it's because, especially you know, because it's young and because this is a younger generation that's very plugged into the internet. And so the consumers in this case have an incredible amount of power. And so if you're if you're interested at all in in the relationship between consumers and companies, looking at the video game is an incredibly interesting test case because it's very very different than some of these other test cases. And the reason I thought of this, uh, uh, Deirdre, was because of what you just said, which was uh, the idea around well. You know, it, when you when you have a market where the product is viewed as as a required thing, well, it doesn't matter who makes it. it this somebody will buy this. It has to be made. Uh, and it's almost impossible to separate, well, this molecule came from this oil field and that molecule mm -hmm. came from that mo thing. You've now created a separation between the consumers and the um, and the product and the companies that make it, um, where essentially they know basically for sure within, you know, asterisks that with except for, you know, externalities and exceptions, generally speaking, they can do whatever they want because they have no direct relationship with the customer. Ha ha, too bad, you have to buy our product and you can't choose where it comes from. Um, and largely that's true. Uh, and I think we could actually have a system. Uh, so just to sort of think about that is that, you know, when, we're, when and when I go off on rants criticizing big, you know, international companies and whatever, so they're not all created the same. The problem is not giant companies. The problem is giant companies that have no recourse and you have no ability to influence them or how they do things. Um, and that's not always the case. Bl Blizzard is like a $10 trillion company. They make like a, a $585 million a year off just off licenses of people paying a monthly fee to play a game they made 10 years ago. <laughs> they're drowning in money, and yet they, they're not largely evil. They're, in fact, they're probably one of the better companies. They, they have all sorts of excellent initiatives. When they get criticized for something on a social values thing, they immediately respond, and they immediately change. And I think we could have that in other sectors, and there's a reason we don't. And I just sort of wanted to, to point that out. Hmm. Like Google. Google's like that, too. I love when they when they got rid of their "Don't be evil" motto, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, never mind. Uh oh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been revised. I I also think that these different companies, like for example, gaming industry, and also Google, Facebook, these are all companies that 
their like main business model is not a resource extraction business model. So they can easily do things to like, they can easily make that quick fix. Mm -hmm. Oh, all of your female characters are skinny. Why don't we just put a couple of video game <laughs> designers and make a fat one? Like it's not a big deal. You know what I mean? Whereas to be like in the resource extraction industry and try to save it and try to say we're still doing good, that is a very, very, very difficult thing to do. And I mean, I was really happy when our guest came in and she was saying, you know, this is a super complex issue because it's mostly a lot of these people do have their jobs still to keep. A lot of these people still want to, you know, hold that power and uh, they just have to figure out a better way to do it by like moving, moving away from it. And if we have to use nationalism to do it, I mean, that's kind of like a Donald Trump approach <laughs> <laughs> to, to targeting the oil industry. Just but it works. Using, using, yeah, apparently it works. I mean, we've, we've seen that it works like this entire time. So it might as well. I mean... Anything, anything. Let's try anything. Just for clarity, uh, Sabina, I'm assuming you didn't mean that that's, you know, we should be sexist and racist. You meant the being <laughs> No, no, no. Using the marketing strategy. No, no, no. You might want to be more specific when you say, you know, Trump. That's oh, I mean, using the marketing <laughs> strategy in which Trump has been doing, not, not being racist <laughs> and sexist. It's just targeting a certain population, talking about this is like, you know, we're nationalists, blah, blah. Like, so so let's just go for Canadian oil, you know, like not not saying let's get the Mexicans out of Canada. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyone else want to say anything else about uh, Trump or video games or anything? No. All right. So nice, a short and sweet one today. Well, 16 minutes. That's still a fairly uh, decent length. Uh, we'll be back with more planning next week. And uh, and uh, it's looking very likely that I'll be able to uh, to sit back in the host uh, seat next week, which I'm looking very much forward to. Uh, so uh, officially, uh, thank you very much to the entire team for uh, making up for the time that I've been gone. I'm still not necessarily entirely back in action, but everyone has been fantastic and I've been listening from the sidelines. So thank you to them and thank you to our listeners for, for doing that. And hey, if you enjoy Stefan as host more than me, email us, let us know and uh, I'll make him do it every week and I'll just sit back and make sarcastic comments because that's easy too. Thanks so much for listening everybody and uh, if you're a, a constant uh, listener of the show and you're, you're interested in more detail in why uh, I haven't been here. I'm not going to say uh, get into my sort of personal stuff on air, but uh, I will be sending out a member's email. So uh, if you're interested, you can sign up and we'll have a conversation. That's sort of more of a semi-private thing, but I consider our, our regular listeners part of that family. So uh, uh, feel free to contact me and or, or I'll be sending out a note at some point on the members list. Other than that, have a good green week, folks. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you all real soon.